Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode four in our First Timothy Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Deacons and the Church, where we'll discuss 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, we're going to talk about the qualifications for deacons. And uh, deacons are one of the two roles that are set up, as we see at the beginning of Philippians, as Paul writes to the overseers or elders and deacons. Uh, some people really wonder um, what role deacons have in the life of the church. We're going to talk about that. But in this text, it talks about their qualifications, uh, kind of a filtering for what kind of individuals can be deacons. And also the end of the chapter talks about, I think, the whole purpose statement for the pastoral epistle, this First Timothy, which is uh, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's church. And then the beautiful statement about the mystery of godliness of Christ. So it's a great, great section of scripture we're walking through today. Well, let me go ahead and read the verses that we'll discuss. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The word deacon comes from the Greek diakonos, meaning servant, or more specifically, waiter, like a table waiter. Jesus himself is called a diakonon in Romans 15, Eight. Why is it vital for deacons to understand their role as servants in the life of the church, and why do you think the Lord established the office of deacon given that all Christians, all of us, are called on to be servants in the life of the church. Well, that's what makes it somewhat challenging because we are all servants. And as a matter of fact, the role of servanthood is celebrated so beautifully uh, when Jesus talked about whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And so the idea of, of an aspiration to serve, to find ways to lower yourself, like in Philippians 2, uh, the servant attitude of Jesus, he humbled himself and made himself nothing, being basically basically servant to God and servant to everyone. Uh, you think about the number of times Jesus is sitting with his disciples and somebody with a need comes and says, please come and lay your hands on my daughter or come lay, and he says, I'll go. And he gets up and goes. He's just servant to everybody. Um, and that was Jesus. And also there's some indication in, in one of Jesus' parables that the master uh, will be willing to get up and dress himself and serve his people even in the heavenly realm. So Jesus, I could actually picture him you know, pouring drink and serving table up in the in the heavenly feast mm. because servanthood itself is so celebrated and honored in heaven. It's a good thing to serve others, to meet needs. 
whatever they may be. So yes, all Christians are called on to serve, and yet we have this office called servant. It's kind of official servant people. And so I think the point is that they have a role to play in the life of the church, which we'll discuss what it is. Um, they have a role to play, but that role is fundamental fundamentally a servant role. Now there is a question, why would God set up this this office um, you know, along with the office of overseer or elder, uh, et cetera, and deacon, and how does it function in the life of the church? And that is a little bit mysterious. Uh, we're going to say, and I'll go ahead and make the assertion now, we've talked about it many times. There is no job description for deacons in the Bible. We have no, no kind of permanent, lasting, careful articulation of what deacons are supposed to do in a church. Hmm. Just hear what they're supposed to be, what kind of people they're supposed to be. So they're filtered by these qualities, but they're not given a job description. Now, everybody knows that studies this topic of the seven that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to solve an immediate need, which is in no way universal or common. And that is that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in Jerusalem in the Jewish, predominantly Jewish uh, church in the daily distribution of food. Widows being needy, there weren't men to care for them, and so the church was caring for them. And so uh, it, there was just this certainty to make certain that everyone in the community was having their needs met. And so these seven uh, men were chosen to make certain that the Greek-speaking widows were not overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Well, that's not really helpful for most deacons in like a Baptist church or something like that. We mm. don't have any Greek-speaking widows. So then it's expanded traditionally, that's a key word, expanded traditionally to look to to uh, deal with physical needs meeting physical needs like issues of poverty uh, benevolence needs or physical things like around somebody's house that need to be repaired or then within the church practical physical needs and that's fine but just understand that that's a tradition rather than a clear teaching of the bible so fundamentally that's the role that deacons play and you know why did god want them that's a question but in his wisdom he has set up these two offices and, and I think it's a beautiful thing. So though we don't have that job description, we do have this list of qualifications here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. What is the significance of the list of qualifications for deacons? That deacons have to be evaluated by these attributes before they can serve in this role. Yeah, it's what kind of person may be a deacon. You know, it's, it's filtering that. And one of the most important things that happened when I came, just to give you a little bit of my history here, First Baptist Church in Durham. Um, First Baptist Church in Durham circa 1998, 25 years ago when I came, was kind of a standard Southern Baptist church that had a single elder model with a church staff that was hired who reported to him as though he was kind of a boss like in a, in a secular company. And then a board of deacons that saw themselves, some of them did anyway, as like a check and balance to the power of the pastor. And their job description was to aid the pastor in fulfilling the ministry of the church. So that's a little murky. And the idea was that they would do anything necessary to do works of ministry. So they're almost like what I would call pseudo-elders, what we have elders for now. They would have leadership roles, etc. And there was a, a rotating group of them. Uh, there are 24, they're specified by our constitution bylaws. There are eight of them in each class, and they serve for three years. So it's eight, eight, and eight. And, uh, you know, you would rot have eight people rotate off and then eight others would be voted in. And they were voted in basically in a popularity contest. They just had to have been church members for two years. That was it. 
And then whoever got the most votes would be, you know, the top eight vote getters. But they kept a record of numbers 9, 10, and 11 so that if any of the 24 deacons could not continue to serve, then the highest vote getter that hadn't been chosen, he was like an alternate deacon, would rotate up. That was how it was. But there was no filtering. One of the first things I did is say, hey, let's do 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Let's filter the candidates. And you look at the qualifications, which we're about to walk through. So what kind of people ought to serve as deacons? That's what they did. Now, we have a whole different polity now, plurality of elders, and the deacons are there just to serve as the elders define their tasks. So basically, at First Baptist Durham, it is the elders that define the tasks, the jobs of the deacons. So as we begin this list of qualifications, Paul begins by saying the deacon must be dignified and not double-tongued. What does it mean that deacons are to be dignified and not double-tongued? Well, Wes, I think what it what it speaks to is that that you know, as we minister for Christ, our reputation means a lot. And so just like the elders, that there's nothing that could be spoken against these individuals. They carry themselves with dignity. Um, the translation you use, ESV, talks about double tongue. My translation says sincere. I think the idea is what they say is the truth. Mm. They speak the truth. Mm. And and they are honest men. And so I think that's what, what it is, that, that fundamentally these individuals have high character. They're high character individuals. They carry themselves with dignity. They speak the truth and they can be entrusted with things like money, for example. A lot of times deacons are entrusted with collecting offerings and then counting the money and making sure it's distributed properly mm. so that they carry themselves with dignity in that way. And that's actually where Paul goes immediately on the heels of those two qualifications, dignified and not double-tongued. He says they uh, can't be greedy for money uh, and that they must not be given uh, to much wine. How might those requirements that the deacons not be given to much wine or greedy for money fit together under the heading of self-control? Sure, that's a good word, self-control. They're not slave enslaved to their pleasures, to their sensual drives. So you think about what things pagans want in this world. They want pleasure. They want power, right? They want money. They want experiences. They want sex. Um, they want sensual delights. Um, Christians are called away from that fleshly life in general. But deacons, and, as with elders, are called clearly to be living a life free from those things. And it seems uh, if they are going to be handling money that that they're not tempted in that way. They're not looking to take God's money, money given to serve the Lord, and use it for themselves. So they are people that are not living for that kind of sensual pleasure. They don't get drunk. They're not indulging in much wine. This is not saying that it's wrong to drink any fermented beverage. I don't think you can make that case from the Bible. Jesus changed water into wine, but Jesus never got drunk, ever. And uh, godly men are self-controlled in the area of wine. And then wine becomes a symbol for just good things in life that you need to use in moderation. Hmm. Uh, just like honey is, I think, in the book of Proverbs. You know, eat a little honey. It's, it's enjoyable. But don't eat too much or you get sick. <laughs> and and you'll, you'll, get, you'll, you'll become addicted to it. So hmm. the idea is I will, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So these are individuals that are self-controlled and not enslaved to their drives and their passions. Now, Andy, this next verse was actually a part of a recent conversation we had about the filtering of deacon candidates and thinking who might best serve the church in that role. Uh, what does verse 9 teach us about deacons? Yeah, deacons uh, need to keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. So that is they are doctrinally solid. Um, deep truths of the faith means you're going beyond the milk into the meat. 
That's what I, I think of. You know, I think all scriptures, doctrines can be broken into those two categories, milk and meat. Milk is, uh, are the simple doctrines that are core and essential for your salvation. So simple a child could get them. There is a God. He made everything. He's holy. He gave his commands. We need to obey them. We've violated his commands. We've broken them. We sin. Um, Jesus came, lived, lived a perfect life. He never sinned, died on the cross. All of that's milk. And you can say it again and again, and we'll hear it forever. We'll need it forever. It's the core of the truth. But then you got meat. And meat are those harder doctrines, what this text calls the deep truths of the faith. These deacons hold to those things. They believe in the harder doctrines. We would say things like predestination and um, just the complexities of biblical theology that are not easy to understand, aspects of the incarnation and, and of the Trinity and d dark, d difficult questions like the problem of suffering in the world, pain and suffering and, and providence and, how, and the doctrine of providence and how God can be sovereign and still have so many hard things happen. And they're holding on to that. Now, the difference between them and elders on these things is they don't have to be able to teach them. The gift of teaching is the ability to articulate these things clearly. Deacons don't need that ability. They may have it. A deacon could later be an elder, definitely. There's, but it's not required that they're able to articulate the deep truths of the faith with that gift of teaching, but they have to hold it. What? With a clear conscience. In other words, they have no reservations about the deep truths of the faith. They're not holding back and like, all right, fine. If that's what I have to do to get the job of deacon, I'll do it. No, no, no. They actually do hold these doctrines with a clear conscience. Or you could argue their clear conscience has to do with their lifestyle. Like it says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Mm -hmm. they're, they're like that. They're individuals that are watching their life and their doctrine closely. They have a clear conscience. What is this testing process that Paul commands in verse 10? And why is that vital to the proper functioning of the office of deacon in the life of the church? Well, it brings me back to my early days of controversy with many mm -hmm. members of the church. When I meddled, in how deacons were actually chosen. Remember, some of those individuals saw deacons as a check and balance against the senior pastor's power. So you think about the separation of powers in the federal government, the judicial, executive, and legislative, and there are some pretty clear rules of what the president may and may not do uh, to, let's say, for example, uh, make somebody a Supreme Court justice. He does not have that power. He can nominate but it is the, uh, the Congress that establishes the Supreme Court justice. And once they're established, then they need to not meddle with their rulings, you know, the separation of powers. Um, well, then I looked on that a little bit in this Baptist church. Like I had no right to get involved at all in the deacon election process, you know, forsooth, you know, may, may it never be. <laughs> but I was like, look, I'm just reading the scriptures here. It says, let them first be tested. And so what I thought it was reasonable for, do, for the deacon candidates to do is to give a testimony of their personal conversion, their faith in Christ, and their present life with Christ, their walk with Christ now, how they mm. are, are living, and also their, their desires for service in the life of the church. It seemed reasonable for them in that sense to be tested. Since we're a congregational church, the testing is just having to do that, having to speak their convictions to the church. So that was an early version of the testing. Now what we do is we have elders that filter deacon candidates and ask the questions necessary to make certain that they hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, things like that. Now, Andy, before we move on to verse 11, uh, at the end of verse 10, it says, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Can we mm -hmm. think of this in the same way that we would think about this word 
as we find it elsewhere, that they're not perfect, but they're above reproach, let's say. Yeah, blameless, above reproach. What I, I think of it in a simplistic way. If anyone who knew them and knew the church and knew the scriptures knew these things pretty well, and heard their name as a candidate for deacon, nothing would pop in their mind why they couldn't serve. Yeah, That's what I'm mean. just keeping it simple. It's like, oh, all right. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. I think they would do a good job. If everybody says that, then let them serve. So that's what I mean. No, you can't, you're not looking for sinless perfection. First John says there is no one like that. But you are looking for no eject modes. There's no reason why even the unbelievers that know them in the community as a business person or as, a, as an individual, there's no reason that person can't serve as a deacon. Grammatically, the Greek for verse 11 could either refer to women or wives. Uh, since it's in the deacon section and begins with the word likewise, as verse 8 does, it either refers to women deacons or wives of deacons. Mm. Faithful complementarian churches have landed in different places on the question of women deacons who do not teach or have authority over men, like 1 Timothy 2.12 said, but who serve as deaconesses under the authority of male elders. With all that in mind, how have you understood and applied this verse, particularly in light of some of the history that you shared uh, with us? Right. I think it's just good for pastors who are dealing with the whole counsel of God's word to be honest about texts and questions when the, and with their level of certainty. So I have a very high level of certainty uh, concerning the milk of the gospel and concerning uh, doctrines like the incarnation of Christ, the Trinity. Those things are vital. Uh, the virgin birth, um, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, is, these are essential to our salvation. We have to believe them. Um, and they are myst mysterious, and he's going to say that in a minute, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. It's just infinitely mysterious, but we hold it. Um, at a lower level, though, there's other things. I would say uh, questions like um, the difference between um, believer baptism and infant baptism is lower than the deity of Christ for me. And so I can accept somebody as a pedo-baptist, a Presbyterian friend, or an Anglican, evangelical Anglican friend, or evangelical Methodist, um, and we disagree on baptism. Um, but I still believe what I believe, and I'm going to do church that way as a Baptist. But you just need to be honest. It's what I call the hierarchy of certainty of truth. The idea that women can serve as deacons is lower for me on the hierarchy of certainty of truth, but I still think it's better, a better interpretation than that verse 11 is speaking about deacons' wives, because that's what you're dealing with. You've got something said about women in some respect in verse 11. It is definitely still in the midst of the deacon section because he goes back to deacons in verse 12 and 13. All right, a deacon must be, et cetera. So you're, you're right in the middle of deacon section. So what we've got is big picture, First Timothy three, the whole the whole section we've been dealing with here is you've got elders and then deacons, mm. big picture. And then really you've got elders, first Timothy three, one through seven. Then you've got deacons, first Timothy three, eight through ten. Then you've got something about women or wives, and then you've got deacons some more in verses twelve and thirteen. So you basically have, in my geeky, algebraic, mathematical way of looking, you've got elders being section A, you've got deacons being section B, then you've got women or deaconesses, B prime, I guess, and then you're back to deacons again, B. It's a head scratcher. Hmm. The, the kind of silver bullet question 
that I have. And by that, I mean, it's kind of a clincher for me on my exegesis of this is why are there requirements for wives of deacons and none for wives of elders? It's hard for me to imagine that this likewise their wives section is extending to wives of both deacons and elders because he goes back to deacons some more. So it doesn't make much sense. Now, Paul's not always super linear logical. He sometimes jumps around a little bit, like in the whole Adam stuff. He begins a sentence that he never finishes. And it happens sometimes. But I think the best way to interpret this is women deacons. And if you say it's just servants that are not teaching or having authority over men, you could well see why there would be women deacons who could minister to other women in ways that men can't. And it makes sense to me. Now, the silver bullet the other way of those that say, no, 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 deacons need to be men is is verse 12. uh, the deacon must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. So the way I understand in my interpretation is verse 11 is speaking to female deacons and verse 12 is speaking clearly to male deacons. That's the way I understand it and that's the way we're going to run in this podcast. But I do have a high respect for those that say, look, because of verse 12, the husband of one wife statement, deacons are men. Hmm. And this is talking about uh, wives of deacons and I don't know why. There's requirements for wives of deacons and not for wives of elders. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I could just have the wives of elders read the wives of deacons passage and say, do that. But there's no good reason to say that they as wives of of elders should do that. Mm -hmm. So I get it. So this is lower certainty. But in our church at First Baptist Durham, we do have women deacons. Well, let's look at the specifics of verse 11. What is the requirement for these women to be serious, sober-minded, and grave? Teach us, and why should godly women pursue these attributes? Yeah, serious-minded. They're they're not malicious talkers. It says in my translation, they're self-controlled, moderate in their tastes. Um, They're trustworthy in everything. It's just they're serious women. They're women who take life seriously. Um, You know, I think in general, both men and women— Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He came into a world of pain and misery and sorrow and death. You think about Revelation 21.4, there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, and pain. But this world, there is death, mourning, crying, and pain. Mm. So we Christians need to be serious about that. I think about that when I preach. I get up and it's like, no, this is serious. What I'm doing is serious. I don't mind using humor. I love humor, but a little bit. It's That's not my purpose. I think these women need to be like that. They need to say, hey, like, life is serious. And we want to minister to hurting people. We want to minister to those that, that you know, we want to alleviate suffering. We want to do what we can to make certain the gospel is spread and the poor are, are ministered to and that people's needs are met and that we're, we're just, that's what we want to do. And they're serious about it. Um, so I think verse 11 is talking about a serious-minded woman that mm. takes her faith seriously. And however we interpret whether this allows or does not uh, allow uh, female deacons, these are beneficial attributes for the women of our churches to aspire to and to pursue uh, as they seek to faithfully serve in the life of the church. Yeah, I would say if I'm going to go down the path of this is talking to wives of deacons, that's interesting to me. It's like, you know, why would it matter what kind of woman the deacon is married to? Because the deacon's going to be doing the ministry. But let's go with it. Let's imagine for a moment, though it's not my interpretation, that we are talking about wives of deacons. It just shows how significant marriage really is. Mm. It shows how important it is that both the marriages of elders and the marriages of deacons be in good order. Uh, as verse 12 is going to say, he is a husband and one wife. He's he's a faithful man. He's faithful to his marriage, etc. So what's going on at home really does matter. Now, on your interpretation, it seemed like what you were saying, and I thought this was very helpful, is that verse 11 is then addressing women and verse 12 would be addressing the men. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
why uh, is this command here in verse 12, uh, and why is it vital for male deacons to also be excellent fathers as well as excellent husbands? Well, it says in the elder section, uh, verse 4 and 5, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? It's the same logic here, I think. Um, you know, a deacon must be the husband of one wife and must manage his children and his household well. So let's imagine that we're going to pick up on the on the Acts 6 model of seven um, godly, wise men. Uh, and there's some filtering there in Acts 6. You know, they, they are to be spirit-filled and blameless and, and carry themselves well. Why? Because they're going to be entrusted with money. And they're going to be entrusted with some responsibilities. The women need to eat every day. Hmm. They can't. You can't. Oh, we forgot the. You know the 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 southwestern quarter the, today. It's like none of those women got food. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll do better. No, no, that can't happen. So we're talking about some serious management here. So administrative skills. So we need to look at his home and say, does his home run well? Mm. Is he is he caring well for the needs of his family? And if so, then it's a proving ground, like it is for elders, a proving ground of deacons. So he's got to run things well at home. And um, and then he says, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great mm. assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I love that verse 13 lays out essentially rewards for those who serve faithfully yeah. in this office. What's the relationship between faithful service to Christ and great confidence or boldness in faith in Christ. Yeah, I think it's similar to um, what happens when you're uh, when when you suffer, and suffer uh, suffering produces character, and character produces hope. I believe hope might be a direct uh, uh, equivalence to assurance. So hope means uh, a confidence that the future is bright. What is that but assurance? It's similar. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. So the idea is if I suffer well, this is Romans 5, 3 through 5. If I suffer well, I know that I'm a Christian. I think the same logic is here. If I serve well, mm. I know that I'm a Christian. I have great assurance in my walk with Christ. It's really good. Uh, verse 15 makes it plain that Paul had the church and not the family in mind as he wrote this epistle. What's the significance of this insight for 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12? Yeah, he's talking about the church in 1 Timothy 2, 12 is talking about um, – uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. And so anybody who tries to translate the word woman to be wife and the word man to be husband, which is permissible linguistically in the Greek, but it doesn't make sense in the in the exegesis of the book. The book is talking about the church, not the family. Now, the family is in view in terms of make sure that the elders and deacons have orderly families, but the whole epistle is written for the church and that the church be functioning well. So I think this is an interpretive key to the whole book. What are the words pillar and foundation of the truth that Paul uses to describe the church in verse 15 teach us about the purpose of the church in the world? Sure. I would just say fundamentally the church is given to dispense truth into the world. We are, are, are a fountain of truth. All right. That's a very important statement. You know, Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well and says, anyone who um, believes in me, anyone who drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, but the water that I give him will become within him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, like a never-ending source of living water. Well, I'm going to borrow that image now to bring it over to this verse and say, we are to be a fountainhead of truth. You want to, you want 
You want entertainment, go somewhere else. You want excitement, thrills and spills, go somewhere else. I'm gonna tread on some toes here. You want a smoke machine, go to a rock concert. Well, then what do we go to church for? The truth. Hmm. That's what you're gonna get when you come to First Baptist. Hmm. Yes, we're gonna get, thanks to you and your team, excellent music, but foundational to it is the truth of the gospel. Everything you do, Wes, when you lead in worship, it's to serve the truth, is it not? Mm. Absolutely, it's beautiful. And make the truth beautiful. Yeah. You want it, like the songs that you sing, they are truth-based, they mm -hmm. make the truth beautiful. And so for me, when I preach, I wanna make the truth clear. I want to lay out the truth of the, of the word of God. So the church does the truth better than anything else in society, okay? Kentucky Fried Chicken does chicken better than the church does. <laughs> We had local pops, a local uh, business that does uh, like kind of boutique popsicles. All right. They're really, really high end popsicles. <laughs> Great flavor. They're so really, good. really, they're so very good. good. They do popsicles better than we do. That's true. That's we why we asked them to do that. That's it. why we asked them to come on in and bring them their, bring our pop, the popsicles. That's what they do. What do we do better than anyone else in society? We do the truth. Mm. We are the truth tellers, all right? Now, the image here is architecturally, the church, God's household, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So pillar and foundation, that's just, there. I know there's different translations. I think ESV has something different. Was it buttress? Buttress. Mm -hmm. Okay. The idea is something that supports or structures the truth and all that. Jesus Christ ultimately is the truth. So we are the foundation of the truth and the pillar of the truth. We're the soaring structure of truth. We beautify it. We make it strong. We make it appear um, powerful. That's what the church does. The church is the foundation and pillar and foundation of truth. Also, it's in immovable. Like you go there and it never changes. You're going to hear unchanging truth. Verse 16 is a beautiful verse. Mm -hmm. What does the phrase mystery of godliness mean in verse mm -hmm. 16? And how does verse 16 relate to verse 15 that we just discussed? Yeah, that's a key question. I was going to start there. Thank you for asking that question. Verse 15 and 16 are related in, uh, in the term, in terms of the word truth. What truth is the church the buttress or pillar or foundation of? What truth do we uphold and support this weighty truth? Fundamentally, it's Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. And he is a deep, rich, powerful, complex truth. The incarnation is an infinitely mysterious truth. Hmm. How Jesus could be fully God and fully man. How you could pat him on the back or give him a hug or receive a firm handshake from him or hear him chewing and swallowing, or hear, hear liquid going down his throat like it goes down your throat when you drink, or see him die, see him bleed and die, see his back shredded with a flogging, and think the whole time he's God, almighty God, the son. That's, it, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's hard to even imagine. And so that's the truth we are the buttress or the pillar and foundation of. Christ incarnate, Christ the Lord, Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ raised again in a human body. That's the truth. Now, beyond all question, the mystery of that truth is great. That's actually an understatement. <laughs> beyond all question, the mystery is infinite, not just great. It is an infinite mystery the incarnation of Christ. It is beyond any controversy that that is. And then he, he walks through aspects of things relevant to Jesus the Christ. Uh, he appeared in a body, 
All right. What that means is he was preexistent. He was God the Son before he took on a human body. Then he became human. It's a change. He took on a human body. He was enfleshed. He was incarnate. That's what enfleshed, incarnate means. He appeared in a body. And then it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, I believe that's referring to his resurrection, but it could also refer to his miracles. I think first the miracles, because it's by the Spirit he did the miracles, vindicating his personhood as Son of God, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, rise and walk. Vindication. Spirit's power was there, and he's vindicated. Imagine if he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, says to the paralyzed man, rise and walk, and the Spirit doesn't show up. Mm. And there's no power there. He's not vindicated. But the Spirit was always there working with the Son of God, vindicating him through his miracles. But especially, as it says in Romans chapter 1, it says, who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. There's vindication by the Spirit. The Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that's an infinite mystery because Jesus raised himself from the dead and the Father raised him from the dead. There are different <laughs> verses to that end. But the Spirit raised him from the dead. So he was vindicated by the Spirit, by his miracles first, and then by his resurrection. Then was seen by angels... He was seen at his birth where the angels came to celebrate the incarnation. And then he was there at the empty tomb. An angel in radiant white clothing, white like lightning, came down, rolled back the stone and sat on it. He's my favorite angel of all, just sitting on the stone. <laughs> it's like waiting for someone to come see what he did. <laughs> With his angelic legs dangling down from the top of the stone. But immense power just mm. moved this huge boulder by mm. himself. And, and he was seen by angels, or in John's gospel, there are two angels, one at the head and the other at the foot of where Jesus had been laying there. Um, and he's not here. He has risen. They watched him rise. They celebrated, seen by angels. Then was preached among the nations. Paul himself, a preacher of the gospel. He said, of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a preacher. And so he was preached among the nations to the ends of the earth. People have heard of Jesus. Was believed on in the world. Um, speaking of the elect who have come to faith in Christ, they heard the message and believed it and then was taken mm. up in glory. That's the mm. ascension. Jesus, um, it says in Acts chapter one, uh, that he went about a Sabbath day journey from the city with his onlooking 11 at that point, apostles. And he said, gave them, you know, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. He was taken up in glory. Mm. It's an amazing passage, beginning with the description of the kinds of people who should fill the role of deacon and ending with this glorious reflection on Christ, the truth. Uh, Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us today on this passage that we've been discussing? Well, going back to deacons, you know, sometimes it's best for us just to accept what God does and he wants there to be deacons. We shouldn't ask why. Uh, we shouldn't ask why we don't have a job description. I think the answer is he's going to leave that to the church to decide. It's a matter of Christian freedom, what the deacons can do. He's given enough indications of things that they can do. He's worked through history and in tradition and job description. So I think practical servant ministries, serving the elders as they do in the ministry of the church. Um, I think that's how I understand it. The filtering is important. Uh, I think churches uh, led by elders need to filter deacon candidates. Mm. I personally believe, as you do, that women can serve as deacons, but I understand why some say no. And I, I think in the end, we'll, we'll, we'll find out the truth of it. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is um, these verses are vital. And then the beauty of the statement of the church is the pillar and foundation of the church, truth gives us a job description. The church is is about truth, hmm. uh, essentially the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's how the chapter ends. Well, this has been episode four in our First Timothy Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode five entitled The Power of Mature Pastoral Leadership in Combating False Doctrine, where we'll discuss 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.